Now, we're in the middle of this series called Holy Habits. I'm really excited about this series. This was something that the Lord spoke to me uh, last fall as I was preparing and planning for where we're going to go in this new year. And he gave me this idea to walk you through some of the habits that God gave me to instill into my life, some of them going all the way back to my teenage years and my 20s, things that were formative habits that helped me to become who I am today, uh, helped me to develop into the person that God would allow to lead a congregation of hundreds of people uh, toward him and and aligned with him. And so I'm just going to share those things with you as we walk through this series. And I'm really inspired by it. The Lord has stretched me in a lot of ways. He's speaking to me, teaching uh, me many different things. Last week, we talked about the habit of faith, how to approach each position or each thing that we run into in life through the lens of faith, through the lens of bringing God into it, as opposed to just trying to do it on our own, do it by ourselves. And if you missed last week, you can check that out. We talked about the word of God being the thing. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word and how important it is to have a daily habit of building your faith through the word of God. So how many of you have jumped on our uh, reading plan with us? A number of you jumped on that reading plan. If you haven't, it's not too late. Just jump on there. Go to the website, click on the little link for our reading plan, download that and get started and jump right in and find a way that you can share that with some of your friends. I'm doing it every single morning. Uh, First thing, I wake up around 6.30 on most mornings. First thing I do, I grab my phone and I open my Bible app and I go to the daily reading and I start reading it. And by about 6.45, the different pastors that are in my group that starts popping Popping up the verses that they've chosen, and each of us were doing this SOS method. This is what we pick a verse out of the reading. This is what God is saying to me. We write that out. This is what uh, I'm going to obey God in. That's the O. And then the final S is who am I going to share this with? And we're all doing that. And so all of a sudden, the pastor from First Baptist pops in with what God's speaking to him, and the pastor from Preston Trail pops in who's speaking to him, and from uh, Revive Church in downtown McKinney who's speaking to him. And we're all just inspiring each other. It's been an amazing thing, strengthening each other, just like you would in any other part of life. A Bible says iron sharpens iron. And I just encourage you to jump in, find a habit, find someone in your life that you would say, Hey, would you, would you read this with me? Would you be a part of this plan with me? And can I send you a text? I'm not going to bug you, but will you send me what you feel like God's saying? And I'll send you what I feel like God's saying. It's an amazing thing that will inspire you, hold you accountable as well. I don't want to be the flunky slacker that doesn't, that doesn't do the reading that day. So I'm up there trying, in fact, I'm trying to be the first pastor. Jim is always the first one. He keeps getting up before me. Doesn't matter how early I get up, he keeps beating me uh, and reading his Bible before me. So I'm, I'm chasing Pastor Jim down, man. I'm going to beat him at some point in time. I'm going to beat him into the holy place. He keeps sneaking in there ahead of me. I don't know if it's because, you know, I don't. he's got to, maybe Jesus loves him more. I don't know what the deal is. But uh, we're going to jump into a brand new habit today. I want to talk to you about the habit of worship. The habit of worship. And I'm going to open up this message by telling you a story. And I'm going to ask you just to kind of go with it today. Uh, Most of you that know me know that I started out, my first career was as a professional martial artist. And I had a 15-year career in the martial arts uh, from the time I started training around uh, 11 and 12 all the way through. I started actually teaching. And by the, at 14, at 16, I was running the studio. 17, I started my first uh, independent club. At 19, I had investors that came in 
took my club studio 20 and I made the USA Taekwondo team at 20 and I was off to the races, traveling the world, fighting, competing, all that kind of stuff. But it all started in the summer of 1985. And I know many of you feel like, my God, another story from Joel's childhood about the martial arts. Well, I guarantee you there's about 800 more that you've never heard. So just hang on. Have you heard the Taco Bell story? Travis has. Travis heard the talk. What about the Midnight Rodeo? You don't know these? Come on, guys. Just hang with me, man. I got so many stories. These, I, you didn't know that I was uh, banned from Taco Bell in my hometown. I wasn't allowed to go to Taco Bell. That was a great fight. Anyway, we'll talk about that. That's another day. That's another. That doesn't fit into this message. That doesn't fit in this message. But uh, anyway, yeah, and it was on my parents' 35th wedding anniversary. That's a great way to help your parents celebrate is you go to the ER for being in a fight at the Taco Bell. Anyway, all right, we're moving on. I don't want to talk about it. Why do you bring this up? Just play it. So it's 1985. It's the summer. My mom asked me if I want to sign up to take this martial arts class at the rec. And, and I'm like, heck yeah, that sounds awesome. She signs me and my little sisters up and we go down there. And it was a group of these redneck hillbilly karate dudes come back from Vietnam or something. I don't know. Every one of them, they were just rowdy dudes. I mean, drinking beer after class. And for whatever reason, they wanted to work with a bunch of, you know, rowdy, you know, scallywag kids that don't know anything. 50 kids in a gymnasium on a hardwood floor, no protection, no padding, no, no helmets, no gloves. By the third class, we're bare knuckle fighting on a hardwood floor. It was, and, and listen to this, the name of the club the martial arts club was called Wild Bunch Karate. Who in their right mind would sign their kid up to be a part of the Wild Bunch karate group? I mean, it was just wild, right? And so I remember being in that class and I had a natural gift for um, inflicting bodily harm without feeling any remorse whatsoever. It's a special gift. God doesn't give it to everybody, but I naturally began to excel and the instructors got their attention. And next thing you know, I'm going to tournaments and, and competing and fighting. And all. it was just an amazing beginning of my martial arts career. But when you're a kid, all you want to do is learn the kick and the punch and the chop and the spin and the splits and the flips and all, all that kind of fun stuff. But that's not where they started us. That's not the first lesson. They started us, I remember in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, being there at the, the rec center on the gym floor, and, and everybody, the first thing they did was they had a standard attention and learn how to hold a disciplined position, and then they taught us how to bow. And everything about our training, every single portion of our training began and ended with a bow. We had to learn how to stand perfectly straight. You only bent at the waist. Your eyes looked straight forward. You always showed respect. You never deviated. Before you even could step onto the floor to train, you had to bow. Before you addressed your instructors, you would bow, and they would bow back. It was a mutual respect, a mutual honor. The student submitting to learn from the teacher, and the teacher submitting to honor and give their gift to the student. Before we would fight, we would bow to our opponent. When we were done, we would bow to our opponent. It was all about respect and humility and submission. And it was the beginning point of all of our training and the ending point of all of our training. And I had no idea that that tiny little lesson would follow me through my entire life, that one day I would be sitting in a restaurant in Plano in front of two great spiritual men that would begin to ask me questions. And they didn't ask me questions about my seminary degree. They didn't ask me questions about 
my biblical education. They were asking me questions about my personal life and my personal character and my, my level of, of respect and honor and excellence and these different things. And the lessons I began to learn at 11 years old were the lessons that opened the door for me to step into a ministry career. And it's why I'm standing on the stage today was because of some of the habits from my childhood that translated even into how I approach God. What is worship? When we think about the word worship, we probably think about singing, right? I I mean, you're all in church or you're watching church online. And when you're in church, we think about if anybody that grew up in church, the very first part of the service is the music, but we call it worship. It's the worship segment, the praise and worship segment. And there's a difference between praise songs and worship songs, right? The praise songs are like ah, high energy and the worship songs are like, oh, right? I mean, you got, it, it's, there's a difference. And that's what we think. We think of that. And then you go into the, you know, the, the whatever announcement segment of church. And then you go into the teaching segment of church. And then you go into the praying or altar part of church. It, but worship a lot of times gets brought into one little part of church, And is it possible that we get it wrong and we don't realize that worship is way, way, way bigger than that? Is it possible that worship is everything? The the Bible says that, that we are to live our lives as a living sacrifice for this is our proper act of worship, to keep ourselves spotless, to make our life worship. It's not supposed to be a 20 minute segment on a Sunday. It's supposed to be how we do life. But when I look at scripture, I want to take a a couple peeks at at scripture because there's a thing when you're dissecting scripture called the law of first mention. What that means is the first time you see a word in the Bible, it sets a parameter for that word for how it's going to be used going forward. Um, And and anywhere that it goes from there, that's its starting point. So the word worship starts in a certain place, and all through scripture, you see that word have a connection to its origin. The very first place that that word is used is in the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verse 5. This is the passage. It says, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad, Isaac, and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Now, this is an interesting story because Abraham had been told by God to take Isaac, his son, his one, one and only promised son. He had another son, but this was the promised son, and take him to a mountain that God would show him and sacrifice him on an altar unto God. Now, that is really foreign and strange to us But to Abraham, it wasn't that foreign because Abraham was from a place called Ur, which is actually in Iraq. And the gods that they worshiped in Iraq were gods that were very accustomed to asking for human sacrifice. Specifically, the god named Moloch was all through the Middle Eastern region, was worshiped all through there. And that was the god that asked for you to give your children to him through the fire And it was a God that demanded child sacrifice and the bloodshed of children for worship. 
And can I tell you that the demonic gods of the Old Testament, they're actually demons, they're eternal beings. That God is still alive today. He's not dead. Moloch still exists, and Moloch still demands human sacrifice, specifically children and babies. And Moloch is worshipped in America every single time someone chooses an abortion. You can say, well, that's not what I intend. It's just my body, my choice. And Moloch says, thank you. I'm glad you agree with that statement. I invented it in the first place. I'm not trying to be political today. I'm just talking to you about the author of life, Jesus Christ. The author of life, Jesus Christ, does not actually ask for that. And besides, it's not your body, it's his. It's his body, his choice, not your body, your choice. It's his body. You belong to him. You were bought with a price. You were purchased by the blood of Jesus, and your body does not belong to you. It belongs to him. I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to be kingdom. So when God asked Abraham to come and do something, it wasn't foreign to him. Because Abraham's like, wow, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm building this relationship with this God that I followed to this land. Maybe he's similar to the gods of my fathers. I don't, I don't know, but he's following, he's trusting. Now, this is another interesting part of the story. Abraham wisely did not tell Sarah. God gave him an instruction, and Abraham said, okay, God, but I ain't telling her. Can you imagine after Sarah had waited 25 years for this baby, now the baby's grown, a young man, strong enough to carry all the firewood for an animal sacrifice. This is a strapping young man that's carrying all the, he's walking up the mountain carrying the firewood, enough wood to create a massive fire. That's a lot of wood. To be able to burn up an entire an entire sacrificial animal, he's asking his dad, where's the sacrificial lamb, father? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. Can you imagine the internal battle inside of Abraham's mind as he's walking up this mountain, holding in his hand, the Bible says, the fire and the knife. The knife that he is going to kill his son with and the fire he's going to use to light his son on fire and burn him as a burnt offering unto God. It's an amazing story. And Abraham gets to the top of the mountain. I don't know how the conversation went. I can imagine him looking his son in the eyes and saying, you have to trust me. I don't understand, but this is what God said. You have to trust me. The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Binding his son tying him up. After his son has helped him build the altar, Abram, Abraham had to convince his son Isaac to help him build this altar. Bring the sticks together for the kindling. Lay down on top of it. Voluntarily. Raises his hand. And God grabs his hand. 
and says, that's enough. I just wanted to see if you love me. I would never ask for that. I would never ask for that. That's never my will. But I wanted to see if you loved me as much as the God of your forefathers loves their demonic God, Molech. I've heard some theologians teach that God was looking for a human that he could trust that was willing to do the same thing for God with his firstborn son of the promise that God was willing to do with Jesus for us. It was part of God having a legal right to do what he did to shift all of creation with the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Interesting, the word in this passage for worship doesn't mean sing. It doesn't mean praise. It doesn't mean play a flute or dance up and down or shout. The very first word ever used for worship in Hebrew is the word shacha. Shacha. It means to bow. To bow. Not like the little bow we did in martial arts class. In the New Testament, the word used when the Magi came, the very first mention of the word worship in the New Testament is when the Magi came and said, where is this baby, this child that's born king of the Jews? We have come that we could worship him. It's the word proskuneo. Proskuneo is where we get the word for prostrate, to prostrate yourself, to lay down flat before The origin of worship, the beginning of worship, is not what we think it is. Nothing wrong with what we think it is. That's a part of it, but it's not its origin. The beginning of worship is this. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me, but I bow. I submit, I humble myself, I trust you to prostrate oneself. Father, I don't, under, I don't get it. I can't comprehend this. I don't know why I'm going through this, but I trust you. I trust you. In my Bible reading this week, I was uh, challenged by the story of Job. Um, God, that dude got a raw deal. If you don't know the story of Job, you can look it up in the book of Job. It's spelled like Job, but it's pronounced Job, apparently. And... um, Man, Job had a tough day. He had, he had a, 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 at least at one point, a wonderful wife. She turned out to be a little uh, rougher on the edges later on the story. Um, probably she was just having a bad day. Ten, ten children. His number one concern in life, he was a righteous man. His number one concern in life was that one of his children would somehow break one of God's laws or commands or expectations and put themselves at risk. So all the time, all through Job's life, 
He made sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in worship unto God, asking God to preserve his children and cover the lives of his children with his sacrifice and with his offerings. Job is in, um, in his house, I guess, and all of a sudden, one of his servants comes in, runs in, bleeding, dirty, breathing hard, says, Master Job, Master Job, I was out in the field to the, to the east, and, 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 and this troop, this tribe of people, they came, and they attacked the flock, and they killed all the servants, all the shepherds, and they, and they ran off. They stole all of your sheep. They stole your, the entire herd, and, and I'm the only one that escaped, and I barely made it out alive, and as he's finishing, another door opens, and a servant comes in and says, Master Job, Master Job. I was out with the camels and, and, and a tribe came down from the north and they attacked us and they killed all the servants and they took all of your camels and, 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 they, and they ran off and I'm the only one that survived and I barely made it out alive and then the door opens again and another servant comes in and says, Master Job, I, I just came in from the east and I was with all of the cattle and a tribe came in from the, from, the, from the east or the west and they came and they attacked and they killed all of the servants and I'm the only one that survived and they took all of your wealth, they took all of your cattle and then one more door opens. The last servant comes in. He says, Master Job, I don't know how to tell you this. But I was with your children. They were having a feast and a festival, and they were partying and drinking and eating and having a great time. And some bandits came in and stormed the house, and, and they killed all of your children and all of your servants. And I'm the only one that made it out alive. In this verse, this verse just wrecks me. Job chapter 1, verse 20. All of this happens in the first 19, pardon me, 19 verses. All of that happens that I just explained to you. Job says, says, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. Shaka. He bowed. He submitted. He laid prostrate. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Worship means to bow. But my question to you today, and this is what my challenge is to me, to myself, is worship your instant reflex. When everything in life hits the fan. Can I tell you... Um, some of you know this. We, Jennifer and I have had a year. Um, we, we have been fighting insurance all year with a house claim. Uh, praise God. Uh, it, it has now been approved. We had a storm damage, water damage, ruined 3,000 plus square foot of hardwood floors. 
They have to rip out, literally gut, empty the entire house. We have to move out for six months. They have to rip everything out. They may have to rip out all the countertops, the, I mean, cabinetry, the whole whatever. It's almost $200,000 worth of damage. Uh, crazy. They denied us like seven times. In the middle of that, we, we've had two car insurance claims. Anybody love working with insurance companies? Listen, I love insurance people, wonderful people. Insurance companies, not so much, right? I mean, it's like, here, give us all of your money. $50,000 a year for health insurance and car insurance and whatever else insurance. All this money you pay for all this. And then when it's time that you need help, they're like, just kidding. We're going to keep your money and we don't want to help you at all. But thank God, finally, after literally like 10, 11 months of fighting this stuff, we finally got approved. We got a rent house. We're getting, we're moving in the next week or so out and they're doing six months of work and fixing everything. But can I tell you, I didn't worship as a reflex. A lot of times, sometimes I yelled. Sometimes I asked for the manager. Uh, There may have been times I thought words in my head that I shouldn't think if I'm a pastor or whatever. I mean, obviously, I would never say them out loud. I mean, I would never, ever, ever say something I shouldn't say. I mean, someone like me would never have the potential to use their big mouth to say something they shouldn't say, right? Guys, I had a tough year. And, and I, I yelled at an insurance person last week. Three days, I didn't cuss. Thought about it a lot, felt like it. But I yelled, asked for a manager that said, thanks for nothing. You're not helping me at all. Why do I pay you $1,200 a month for this specific thing if you're not going to help me for crying out loud? How about you give me someone that can actually help me? Obviously, you're incompetent and you don't know how to help me. So why don't you give me someone that's a little more competent than you, Sarah? (laughs) Not proud of that. I instantly, when I got off the phone, I thought to myself, because I'm working on this message. That was two days ago. And I'm like, I didn't worship. It wasn't my reflex. My reflex was to get mad. My reflex was to get frustrated. November 16th, 2002. I was in church in uh, Carrollton, Covenant Church, Sunday morning. Um, My mom had come in town to help us. My daughter, O'Neal, had been in a coma for a week. And um, we'd been fighting brain cancer at that point for about eight months. It was excruciating. It was horrible. Um, brain surgeries. I mean, a giant scar over her whole head, shaved her head. Radiation. I mean, literally shooting radiation into our baby's brain, killing her brain, trying to kill this tumor. Holding my baby, choking down, syringes full of $2,000 poison. I'm poisoning my own baby, trying to kill the tumor. Oh, man, it's a mind freak. She'd been in a coma. 
for a week. My mom was at home with her, just giving Jennifer and I a little breathing room. She wouldn't sleep through the night anymore. We had friends that would come over and drive her around till three or four in the morning so we could just get a few hours of sleep because she'd scream the whole time. It's a tough time. And uh, I'm in service. I'd been fasting for 11 days, had not eaten a crumb for 11 days, just water and juice. And um, I get a text message from my mom that she's not breathing. And I jump up. I tell Jennifer she's not breathing. And I, I, we had driven separately to church. And I ran up the aisle, made a scene. Didn't mean to, but I did. Ran up the aisle, sprinted out, busted out the doors, ran to my car, jumped in, drove literally 100 miles an hour the entire way to my house. It was only about five or six miles. Ran through every red light, every stoplight, didn't even look. Pull up in front, bump up on the curb, jump out the car, stripping off my suit coat, left the door open. I think I might have even left the car running. I don't even remember. I just ran in the house. Start doing CPR. Oh, my baby. People start showing up. They saw me run out. Jennifer shows up. Pastor Gordon and Derizette show up. Pastor Kathy shows up. Stephen shows up. Coleman show up. A bunch of our friends. Susanna jumps in. She starts doing CPR with me. People are praying. Just taking authority. Calling out for her life. We've been fighting for her life. Hundreds of teenagers in our youth group praying, believing for a miracle for O'Neill. Her name means champion. Yeah. Two hours we did CPR. Breaths and compressions. And Pastor Gordon finally comes and taps on my shoulder and says, Come here, man. I walk into her nursery. We were in the guest room. And um, he says, it's time to let her go. I said, I don't want to let her go. He goes, Joel, it's time. You got to let her go. He goes, let, let her go. Let her go be with Jesus. And I was just devastated. I went back in and I laid down. Literally just laid down kind of on her, you know, just covering her and just weeping. And I remember being there in that place and saying, God, what do I do now? I don't know what to do now. And I instantly heard in my heart, I heard God's voice. I, I, I had learned to hear his voice going through that season. And I heard his voice. And he said to me, rest, Joel. You fought well. It's time to rest. I said, okay. That's when I learned to bow. That's when I learned a level of obedience with him I'd never known before. Um, not proud of the reality that everything I had done, every sacrifice, every fast, everything I had done, I had done with the intention 
to try to get God to do something for me. But when he told me to rest, it started a new phase of my life where I would just submit to him without any conditions, no preconditions, no expectations of what he had to do. I I had a very self-righteous and pharisaical perspective. I felt like God had to do things for me because look how much I did for him. It was a quid pro quo. See, I had um, prayed the same prayer over O'Neill every single night of her life. I would rock her to sleep. My favorite part of the day was putting my baby girl to sleep. I, um, I, just, I love being a dad. I love that. I love that, that time. Still love being a dad. Every single night I prayed the same prayer. I said, God, whatever I have to go through in life, whatever I have to endure, whatever suffering that may be in front of me, whatever happens, just don't let anything happen to her. I can make it through anything else, but I know I can't make it through that. Just God, if, if you love me at all, don't let anything happen to her. I can't make it through that. Every night. And uh, I don't know if it's... Uh, I don't know it to me, and sometimes it feels a little cruel. I know it's not, though, but it felt that way. That the one thing that I'm sure I can't make it through is the one thing he's going, yeah, you can. Watch. Yeah, you'll make it through that. Just wait. I already put what's put inside of you what you need to make it through that. You don't see it yet, but you got it in you. You'll make it through. I don't know what to do with that. I can't create a doctrine around it. It's just my experience. But I can tell you, I can tell you, when you make it through, the thing you're convinced you can't make it through, you see the whole world differently. Now I know I can make it through anything. Listen, I don't want any more suffering. In fact, I would prefer to have just all gains from here on out, just blessings and wonderfulness and just, you know, hey, paid my dues, Jesus, how about just keep on blessing, right? Just, I don't want any more suffering. I had a friend ask me one time, Joel, who do you have in your life that kicks your butt? I said, "Uh, life. I said, life kicks my butt. Every stinking day, something in life is trying to kick my butt. I need friends that will have my back, not friends that want to kick my butt. For crying out loud, life's hard enough. Give me some got your back friends, not kick my butt friends, right? That's how I felt. You need friends that'll sharpen you, though. You really do. You need friends that'll tell you the truth, kick you every once in a while. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's a good friend. See, at this point, I know, I don't, I don't wish, don't want for anything of this, but, but I could lose everything, guys. 
I could lose my wife. I could lose my two girls. I could lose my house. I could lose everything. I could lose this church. I could lose all of you. I could lose all of my friends. And as long as I still have him, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm not afraid to lose. Not afraid to lose. I've lost. Now, I'm not saying I had anything that I went through that was anywhere near what Job went through. But the beautiful part of the story with Job is at the end of his life, God used Job to pray for and bless his friends. And God restored every single thing in his life double. He got 10 more kids. He got double the cattle, double the camels, double the sheep, double the servants, double the household. God doubled every single thing in his life. Because Job knew how to bow. This is the first posture. The Lord's given me five postures. I planned on sharing all five of them with you today, but I only made it to one. So you're going to have to come back next week. Hopefully it won't be eight degrees outside. I want to do something in this moment here at the end of service. The Lord just really arrested me. I, I had no plans on talking about O'Neill. Guys, I, I want you to understand, I never want to talk about that. I don't tell that story for you to feel sorry or sad. I don't tell that story to manipulate. I don't tell that story to get a response. I never want to talk about that. I only talk about it if he makes me. Because somebody needs to hear it. And I'd rather show my scars and show my weakness and show that he is strong than have any other agenda. What I felt in my spirit today is that there might be somebody in the audience, maybe somebody online, somebody on a podcast, maybe two months from now, who knows, that has an area in your life, you're walking through something, and you're trying to hold on, you're trying to make it through, you're trying to sort it out, you're trying to handle it on your own, maybe, and there's one thing God is asking you to do, he's asking you to worship, he's asking you to bow. And I, um, I just want to open this altar up for a second. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right down there. And I'm going to bow before my Father. And if there's anybody here today, or if you're online and you want to bow in your living room or your hotel room or wherever you are, I want to encourage you just to have a, a moment of worship with us. Maybe there's something you need to lay at the altar. Maybe there's something you've been, you've been holding on to. You've been trying to fix it and, and you need to come lay it at the altar. I don't know, but if, if God is calling you, if you're resonating with this, don't, don't you dare let your concern for what someone else thinks about you keep you from stepping into a place of worship with him. It's the holiest habit of all. Amen. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to work inside of the hearts of your children. 
If there's any area of their life that they're supposed to lay down before you, if there's anything that they're struggling with that they're supposed to completely submit and give to you, if there's anything that they're carrying the weight of that they feel like they just can't carry it one more inch, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You've called us to cast our cares on you because you care for us. Holy Spirit, draw your children to your presence. Draw them to worship. In Jesus' name.